not sure I mentioned in my welcome this morning that our minister, the minister of this congregation, is the Reverend Barbara Gerald, and she is on her summer vacation and study leave. She'll be back in August. And I had one of those Saturdays where I wondered, how does she do it every week? <laughs> so I wanted to make sure that, that I mentioned her and lifted her up. When I posted on my personal Facebook page that I was preaching this morning, I added the comment that we teach what we most need to learn. My mother, the late Bernice Ford Kelly, may she rest in peace, was the perfect housekeeper. Our house was always immaculate. Any of you who've ever seen any of the spaces in which I live or work or drive know that I inherited none of these tendencies. None. I am indeed the complete opposite of immaculate. Whatever antonyms there are for immaculate, if my picture were in the dictionary, it would be by all of those. So for years it was my comfortable fiction that with the exception of the love of reading and learning that I got from both my parents, I was nothing like my mother. It's not that I didn't love her. We loved each other fiercely, notwithstanding our many differences, political, religious, Wardrobe choices, general lady likeness, if that's even a word. I loved her. I knew she loved me. I just didn't see myself as being like her. It's only been in the last 20 or so of my 62 plus years on this planet that the great similarity has come home to me. My mother did not want help with housework. Oh, I could wash or dry dishes, I could dust. I remember actually volunteering to do those things because the brownie handbook said that I should. <laughs> but when it came to most household chores, she said, and I quote, it's easier for me just to do it the way I want than to teach somebody else how to do it. She said that in the household, my jobs were to study, to do my homework, and to practice the piano. It took me years to realize that with the notable exception of housework, I was doing this in every other aspect of my life. Going it alone, not only making it harder on myself, but also missing opportunities to collaborate, to delegate, to empower others, to practice asking for help. There's been progress, but the learning process is ongoing. Unitarian Universalism in recent years has been engaged in a struggle between the supremacy of the individual and the health and well-being of the community. It's an honest, legitimate struggle because to honor the individual is to honor the very origins of our faith, founded on the freedom of the individual to read the holy text and rather than accept rote teaching, to consider for themselves the capital T truths that spoke to them. The first Unitarians, after all, the people who had those ideas and spoke those personal truths even before they were known by that name, were individuals that we honor for their courage and their independence of thought, some even in the face of death. We think of Michael Servetus, the 16th century physician and theologian who escaped imprisonment for heresy by the Spanish, then escaped the French, only to be captured and burned at the stake by John Calvin in Geneva, and all because of a little book he wrote called On the Errors of the Trinity. We think of Katarzyna Wyglova, a Polish woman burned at the stake in 1539 at the age of 80. You know how dangerous she must have been because she believed in the oneness of God and the humanity of Jesus. In more modern times, we think of Norbert Chopek, founder of the Czech Unitarian Church, 
creator of the Flower Communion, he was sent to Dachau and ultimately gassed by the Nazis in 1942. And most recently, Toribio Kimada, a universalist who founded the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Philippines, shot in 1988 by assailants who opposed his social justice ministry. And of course, I haven't forgotten our two modern-day Unitarian Universalist civil rights martyrs, the Reverend James Reed and Viola Liuzzo, both inspired by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King to go to Selma, Alabama to work in the movement, and both killed for doing so. And while I recognize, respect, and honor the individual courage it took for both of them to do that, to heed Dr. King's call to step out of their privileged lives and put their bodies on the line for people they'd never met, we know as a historical fact that they were working in community. They joined with others, courageous people, black and white, who were doing that dangerous work. Because their lives were taken, and if you've listened, how many of you have listened to the recent podcast called White Lives? I really commend that to you. It's about the murder of James Reben. They talked to a local activist, Joanne Bland, in Selma, and they are at Brown Chapel looking at the tribute. There is a monument there to James Reed, Viola Liuzzo, and Jimmy Lee Jackson, the young black activist who was shot in Marion, Alabama, who was the, whose, whose murder was actually the catalyst, who was shot by a state trooper. His murder was the catalyst for the first Selma march. And if you listen to this woman, Joanne Bland, she says, reading the monument where it says they gave their lives, she said they didn't give their lives, their lives were taken. And because their lives were taken, they became symbols for a wider movement built on community and collective liberation. And that's my point here today, that along with our first principle, respect for the inherent worth and dignity of every person, honor of the individual, we also must honor our seventh principle, respect for the interdependent web of which we are a part. When individualism becomes toxic, as it sometimes can, the seventh principle, the community, must take precedence. And although we might say it's only human nature to look for one strong leader, to want to single out the exceptional person, I have to stop and ask myself the question, and I've already gotten a little pushback on this this morning in, uh, in the adult RE class, and I'm so grateful, by the way, to Bennett and Jax for, for teaching that class. It's wonderful. I was glad to be there today. But I have to ask myself, is it really human nature, or is it the nature of white supremacy culture? And if you've not been here and you've not heard us use that phrase, I want to take just a minute to unpack it. I am not saying when I say that that we are, that we are wearing hoods and burning crosses or whatever. That's not, when I talk about white supremacy culture, I'm talking about the fact that white culture has been set as the supreme. It's been set as the standard. And it's our responsibility, our job right now, to be able to look at that honestly, look at where we've been complicit, and, and try and move forward together. Too long, we as a society have tended to equate those things as one and the same, what we think of as human nature, whether unconsciously or consciously, um, has been about white culture. Think of the times that we have honored communities as opposed to one individual leader. It's often in instances where we cannot identify one person from the group and must recognize the strength of the collective. Think of the people responsible for the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. 
Think of the students in Tiananmen Square, the passengers of Flight 93. And right here, the leaders of Northern and Central Louisiana Interfaith, and together Louisiana, including many of you, because if you are a part of that effort, you are leaders. All IAF, or Industrial Areas Foundation organizations, are a model of collective leadership. There is purposely no one leader in charge. The organizer is a resource, a teacher, occasionally one who greases the wheels a bit, or at least shows us where to find the grease. But the people together, organized people, are the leaders. Now the myth of self-sufficiency is baked right into the American pie. You know the one, that pie which, from which everyone who has cut off a big piece is supposed to have earned it, square, fair and square by the sweat of his brow. And I do say his because it is usually white men about whom the story of the self-made man is told. The truth, of course, is that if his wealth was inherited, he wasn't self-made at all. And though his parents, grandparents, whoever made the original fortune may have worked very hard, the truth is that even starting from scratch, white men were starting out several jumps ahead. There's a friend of mine recently who said, I don't resent that you're rich. Just, just don't say that you hit a home run when you started on third base. And while it's true, um, the very fact of slavery put African-American families generations behind in the opportunity to build wealth. And in the post-World War II generation, most of the benefits of the GI Bill were not available to black GIs who had served their country with bravery and dedication. And while it's true that 19th century European immigrants, the Irish, Italians, Poles, and others did face discrimination, it's also true that within a generation they were able to assimilate and become white. Many of them had the opportunity to open shops and other small businesses, an opportunity not open to nearly as many black families. So I've put in your order of service something that was passed around by the Allies for Racial Equity at General Assembly. It's a little game of white supremacy culture bingo. And although it's a useful tool for moving out in the wider world, it was actually designed for use right there at General Assembly to take stock of our own association, to look into our own hearts, to look into our own groups within the organization, to take stock of ourselves internally for these particular habits. And because it's not about white people beating up on ourselves, because guess what, that too centers whiteness, makes it you know, about white people, we can turn over to the other side and remind ourselves of all the positive things we can do in the quest for truly collaborative leadership. The theme of General Assembly this year was the power of we. And many of the worships and workshops centered around collective and collaborative leadership. I'm particularly indebted to two of my friends, my colleague, Asha Hauser, and the Reverend Deanna Vandiver, whom I know some of you know well. Um, they did a workshop on collaborative leadership for collective liberation. I knew immediately that theirs was the workshop I would attend, not only because I love the presenters, but also because it seemed to fit perfectly into all that's been going on right here at All Souls. I'll be honest, it was no fun spending the first almost five months of 2019 thinking that because of budgetary woes I'd be furloughed for the summer. And I'm more thankful than I can ever say to the members and friends of the congregation who met the challenge to keep that from happening. And at the same time that all of that was going on, 
I couldn't help feeling jazzed by the collaborative leadership that has sprung up thanks to that challenge. Thanks very much to the leadership of Bennett, but also to the leadership of you, to the collective collaborative leadership of you, the members of All Souls. I thought at this point to talk about that Chinese character for the word crisis that's supposed to contain the characters for danger and opportunity, and so I was gonna look that up and even find a picture of it, and guess what? I found several articles explaining that no, in fact, it is not true, that this is a great misconception that has circulated for years and years. I am sure it belongs somewhere on that bingo card. Maybe worship of the written word. It's a JFK quote, after all, and you know how we liberals love those. But my lack of knowledge of Chinese notwithstanding, I think it was an opportunity for all of us, for Barbara and me certainly, to acknowledge what we were not in a position to do, and for you, the congregation, to learn all the things you could do. The worship committee that has been putting on these wonderful services that have happened while we've been gone, they are the, they are the best kind of collaborative leadership circle. It's Jennifer Russell, James Pack, Earlene Venable, Judith Cantill, Kathy Osage. Who am I leaving out? Am I leaving out anybody? Tina, are you part of that? Aren't you part of that? No. <laughs> John Allen, yes, thank you, thank you. And I think that's it. Uh, I, you know, you'd think I would have written them down. Uh, <laughs> and also Kevin Henry, really, you know, he recruited wonderful presenters and, and helpers for, for the RE wing. And we helped, we were there to answer questions, but we couldn't do it. And you did it. You did it, and you can keep doing it. That's, that's the wonderful thing. I don't mean like, I'll step back and let you do it. I mean, <laughs> I'll be here to do what you pay me to do, but I'm just so excited by this trend, by this, this upsurge in collective leadership, because that's what it is. So I've given you, um, I want to check my time and be respectful. I've given you, uh, on the other side of the words to the song that we'll sing in a few minutes, um, the qualities of a collaborative leader. And I'd like to just quickly go through those. A collaborative leader has the ability to pay attention deeply, to receive critical feedback accurately and with minimal reactivity or defensiveness, to respond to disagreement with openness and curiosity, to report openly on their emotional state, the willingness to show vulnerability, to know their weaknesses. They can take a deep breath before they hit reply all. We had a former district executive named Bob Hill who used to say, never hit send after midnight. And I thought it was really good advice. I'm not saying I always follow it, but I thought it was really good advice. Protects airtime for others, amplifies voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. Acknowledges the weaknesses of democracy when it involves voting on people's humanity. I kind of love that. I think I get really irritated, I guess is the word, when I hear people say, well, I disagree with homosexuality. How do you disagree with someone's very being? How do you disagree with who somebody is? We should be way past that. We should have been way past that a long time ago. And so it's really hard when I, when I hear something like, I just don't agree. 
it's fine. And oh, the other thing, whatever they choose. Well, it's not a choice. <laughs> so, you know, when did you choose to be right-handed? When did you choose to be straight? So I love that. Acknowledge the weakness of democracy when it involves voting on people's humanity. Is able to follow as well as lead. Laughs easily. That's a big requirement. Responds gracefully in the face of people reacting with partial information. Oh, really? Because this was my experience. I think that's a really interesting. That was not my experience. I think that's a really important thing to be able to do. It's good with bridging divergent viewpoints. Not to make everybody agree, please, in this congregation. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And that's okay. But to be able to bridge those viewpoints, to be able to find the connections, um, not only to build bridges, but to reveal the bridges that are already there. Because so many of them are already there if we will just see them. We may not be on the same page, but we're in the same book. And to know that sometimes slow is faster, even in business meetings. And I've heard people get impatient with this and say, well, why are we checking in? Because it's important to know, even in a business meeting, even with the people in, around the table to do business, how is your heart? And to be present with each other. And of course, at the same time, people are dying and we need to do something now. So we need to be able to live in that paradox and hold that tension. So I'm not standing up here now pretending to teach you what you don't know because I think you know so much of it already. But only to say that we're all continually learning and I'm happy to collaborate with you as we move forward. Thank you. <laughs>